Oh, Lord, your word to us is life. Where else are we going to go? And so come now, Holy Spirit, to give us ears to hear you as you speak to our hearts. Amen. You can be seated. In the first half of the 20th century, in the year 1939, just as the world was entering some of the darkest chapters of the human story ever written, a book was published. And the timing of this book's release, I think, was like an act of divine mercy or something. Because in the wake of World War II and all the despair and trauma that comes as a result of that, we needed this book. And in fact, the whole world agreed that we needed it because in less than a century, this little book, only about 100 pages or so, has been brought to 180 countries in over 100 languages and has forever revolutionized the field of knowledge it addresses. It was so important that Aldous Huxley called its primary author the greatest social architect of the 20th century. Okay, now a lot of things happened in the 20th century. That's a big statement. And it's a book I can guarantee many of us in this room have been personally affected by or have loved ones who would even say it has saved their life. The book addresses the question of how we change as people. And the label usually given to this in the church world today is spiritual formation, and it is most definitely a spiritual book. In fact, uh, some of the most important contemporary voices on spiritual formation reference this work as a kind of gold standard. In particular, the book addresses how we can change or escape or be delivered from patterns of character and behavior that are especially dire and destructive to ourselves and the people around us. But it wasn't C.S. Lewis or Bonhoeffer or anybody like that writing at that time. Let me read you a paragraph and see if you can guess what it is. So many want to stop, but cannot. He's talking about stopping the destructive patterns. There is a solution. Almost none of us liked the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. The great fact is just this, and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you are seriously alcoholic, we believe you have no middle-of-the-road solution. You are in a position where life is becoming impossible. And if you have passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, you have but two alternatives. One is to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of your intolerable situation as best you can. And the other is to find what we have found. It's the big book of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, this morning we continue walking together through Luke 15, this trilogy of parables 
about God seeking lost things. And I have the privilege of beginning our time uh, discussing one of the most well-known stories of all time, what's commonly thought of as the parable of the prodigal son, but what we want to think of as the parable of the lost sons, because they both represent ways of being estranged from the father that we can find ourselves falling into. And so, For the next three weeks, we're gonna be here in this parable considering the perspectives of the father and the lost older brother, but today we wanna look at the famous younger brother. And the paradigm of recovery given in AA, the description of the deeper problems underlying the alcoholism that afflicts the men and women whose stories are told in the big book, it serves as an excellent analogy for the picture of sin and what it does to us that Jesus gives in the younger brother. I actually encourage you to go and find the first edition of the big book online. It's free and it reads almost like a devotional. (laughs) As with anything, you you eat the meat and spit out the bones, but um, the way that Bill Wilson, the primary author of AA, the way he describes how addiction hijacks a person's life and hollows them out, the way he talks about admitting they were powerless over their problem and that their lives had become unmanageable. The way he says they needed a power greater than themselves to, quote, restore them to sanity. The way he frames the need for, as he says, turning our wills and lives over to the care and direction of God. The vision for community he gives among survivors of alcoholism. And especially the way he diagnoses the animating force behind alcoholism as a kind of ego obsession. I mean, I I hope the analogy is clear. You could almost take that book, replace the word alcohol with capital S, sin, and you basically just have a description of life. It's powerful, it's profound. But that's not because Bill Wilson and the many courageous men and women who contributed to the founding of AA stumbled upon some brand new insight that they were introducing to the world for the first time and from which we are drawing. It's actually because they were drawing from and channeling a much older set of insights that we celebrate together every week. He even has a chapter addressed specifically to agnostics and atheists, seeking to convince them that this is a spiritual problem which must be addressed along spiritual lines, and that if they don't come home to God, their addiction will kill them. Sound familiar? That's because this isn't just an addict's problem. It's a human problem. Now, there's addiction in my own family. I understand it's an endlessly complex issue with a whole bunch of unique factors in every different situation. And AA is not some perfect silver bullet in every place for every person. It's not the only treatment option out there. And in saying it's a spiritual problem, neither Bill Wilson nor I am saying that all you got to do is pray and believe hard enough and your alcoholism will magically disappear. That's really obvious if you read the big book. But what I do want to say is the language and categories given to us in AA are helpful in describing not just the patterns of addiction, but again, the human pattern, my patterns, your patterns of sin that Jesus is illuminating in this parable. And that that language can help to carry us toward or give us an imagination for both the true nature of our problem and the kind of surrender to God that we are all invited into. Because the picture of the younger brother is not just a picture of an alcoholic or a wayward teen or, or all the kinds of people that we typically label as prodigals. 
It's all of us. The sin of the younger brother is all of our sin. This this rejection of the father, this leaving home where we truly belong to go do life on our own terms, this squandering or wasting of a great inheritance on things that do not last, things that cannot satisfy, this being reduced to an impoverished, empty version of ourselves far below what we were made for. This is all of our story. These are things we do every day with God in a million ways, big and small. This is what our sin does to ourselves, the people around us, and to creation. And you'd think that that would be bad enough. But then the kind of deeper craziness of sin is revealed in those words of Jesus when he says that the younger brother, quote, came to his senses. That's the thing, right? It's not just that sin is instances of wrongdoing out there. Certainly not less than that, but it's also much more. It's in us. It's a condition, almost like a, like a spell we are under, a sickness in the soul, like addiction, that drives us to a kind of insanity, that, that cuts us off from sense, like Jesus says, that leads us to live detached from reality. In the language of AA, it's a design for living that does not work so that we don't just need forgiveness, although we most certainly do need plenty of that, but we need deliverance. See, the problem is way more profound than we often realize. Some of you may already know this. When the younger brother said to his father, give me my share of the estate, he was essentially saying, I wish you were dead. Can we fast forward to the part where you're out of the picture and I can get my share of your money? And when we treat God as a means to our end, that's what we're doing. When we use God as a badge we can wear or just another tool in our self-improvement project or as a weapon we can use to beat up on the kinds of people that we don't like, it's not just a minor misstep. In Jesus' day, what the younger brother does to his father here would have been intensely shaming to the point where if this conversation was happening in public, you could imagine the whole room suddenly going quiet with awkward silence and stares waiting for the father's reaction. He is not our assistant. He's our father. We are here because of him. Everything we have is his, every heartbeat, every breath. He is sharing with us. And when the younger brother leaves his father's house and sets off for a distant country, he's not just leaving a warm bed and a roof over his head. He's leaving his father's household, his father's entire way of being in the world. It was a way of saying, I don't belong to you. I belong to myself. I want nothing to do with with my identity as your son, with your reputation, your legacy, your business, your whole direction in life. You know, I'm gonna go make my own identity my own life built on independence from you. And you hardly need me to tell you that we don't just build our personal lives on independence from God in a whole bunch of ways, but we have actually constructed an entire world order built on and designed for independence from God. And let's just come to Jesus here. How is that working out for us? How are things going in the kingdom of the world? Smells like a pigsty to me. I mean, it's sad. It's heartbreaking. 
And the invitation of the younger brother is an invitation to realize that we don't just do sins. We are sick with sin. We don't just need a tweak here and there to kind of get us back on track. We need an overhaul. We need deliverance. We are on a path that is incompatible with life. We have passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid. It's an invitation to come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we have been living it in any way apart from the one who is himself life, light, and love. And the degree to which I still think, I don't really need that. I'm not that far gone. I have life, you know, like mostly under control. And so therefore I can keep God as a little side project to kind of give me a boost every once in a while. That's the degree to which I, not having yet come to my senses, am looking at pig slop and thinking, that looks good. I can fill myself with this. I can feed my soul with a life of independence from God. Not realizing this is slop and it's making us sick. Life apart from God is not just like a, like a work in progress. Despite how the world, our flesh, and the devil would like to lull us into thinking otherwise, it's really this bad. It's poisonous. It's dire. And like I read earlier from the big book, no middle-of-the-road solution will do. And related to that, you know, the context of this passage is really interesting. Jesus is telling these three parables about lost things to a mixed group of tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and Pharisees and scribes on the other. But right before this in chapter 14, he actually has two separate conversations with each of those groups. And when he's in private talking to an elite group of Pharisees, he tells them stories about God's radical inclusion of all kinds of people at his table, which would have been threatening and offensive to them. But then right after that, when he's talking publicly to a large group of common people, when you'd expect him to be saying, come on in, the door's wide open, instead he gives hard teachings like, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their own life and renounce all they have, they can't be my disciple. So there's radical inclusion on the one hand and radical devotion on the other. Radical inclusion, there is absolutely nothing that could possibly turn God's heart away from you. Your most regretful, shameful, secret moments, no matter where you've been, what you've done, anyone from anywhere in any condition can come. Radical devotion, if you come, you come with everything. And of course, this would have turned away the vast majority of people from both of those groups. So, like, why is he doing that? (laughs) What's going on here? Here's the thing. Jesus is not impressed by our qualifications, no matter how wonderful. And he is not put off by our screw-ups, no matter how shameful. He is looking for one thing, one thing only, one item on the resume, one kind of person, the ones who will come. Just the ones who will come the ones who will come home, who will come to live with him, who will come to him with everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because if he's gonna touch you and heal you and adopt you and free you, he's not doing it halfway. He is looking for the ones who will not try to plug him into their life strategy, but who realize their life strategy is actually the problem, is actually the thing cutting them off from the abundance and richness and purpose and belonging in the Father's house. 
And so when we admit we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable and we need a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity, when, like Wilson writes elsewhere, we let go absolutely, when we realize that without him we're not just you know, making a respectable effort, we're actually starving in the pigsty and as good as dead. It's precisely there that he can and will raise us up because that's when we run after him like our lives depend on it. And that word translated, he got up and went to his father, is the same word used later of Jesus when he got up out of the grave. That's the kind of work he's doing among us, friends. Not just to make good people bad or good people, uh, bad people good or good people better. He's trying to make dead people come alive again. And that's why it's so important that the church broadly in our time and place and also the church in here, all of us here personally in this room, have and continue to have these come to our senses moments because it's the first step toward the freedom and wholeness that we all long for. And he wants to give us so much more than what we think we long for, more than we're even capable of longing for. He wants to give us the Father's welcome He is the Father's welcome. He wants to make us not hired hands, not employees, but sons and daughters. He doesn't want to contract you, and he doesn't want you to contract him. He wants to embrace you, to eat with you, to dance with you at the banquet. He doesn't love you because you're good enough on the one hand or because you're sorry enough for not being good on the other. Remember, in the story, the father cuts the younger son off before he can even get his full apology out. (laughs) He loves you. He delights in you. he's, He's committed to you. Because you're his. Because he made you for himself. Look, this is one of my favorite lines in all the gospel. When Luke is setting the scene for these three parables at the beginning of chapter 15, he says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And those words in the mouth of his enemies, spoken with disgust, are words I have prayed on my knees with tears of gratitude in my eyes. The worst complaint his opponents could bring against him is precisely our greatest hope. This man, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. What kind of sinners? Who's included here? Just in case you thought you were exempt. Like we read earlier from Exodus. These are the most frequently referenced words across the entire Bible. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping, maintaining, guarding steadfast love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. At the end there, it's three different words all for the same thing as if to say any kind of sin of any size or shape or degree or duration, he's the one who welcomes sinners, all of them, everyone. And just out of curiosity, how many sinners are in the room this morning with us? Do we have, okay, good, great, all right. Well, uh, then I've got good news for you this morning. He welcomes you today. You are received, you're invited. He's been expecting you, waiting for you, scanning the horizon just for you while you are still a long way off, before you have even come close to him. He sees you, 
he saved a seat for you. As strange as it may seem to say, like the father in this story, daydreams of reuniting with you are filling his mind. A kind of lovesick grief is turning over in his stomach. He is wounded by love for you like this father. There is a wound of love in God's heart with your name on it. He's looking for you. And when he finds you, he doesn't roll his eyes and say, oh, no. No, 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 no. Like we read earlier from Ephesians, he says to himself, oh, yes. Here's an opportunity to show off the incomparable riches of my grace by being kind to this person. If you're sick with sin, you've come to the right place. He's not embarrassed by you. He's not ashamed to be seen with you. He's not ashamed to be associated with you. In fact, he's throwing the party of the decade to announce to the whole town and shout from the rooftops, this one's mine, she belongs with me, he belongs at my table, in my house, in my family. See, the younger son thought, at best, I could come back as a hired hand, and even that might be a long shot. But the father in this story does five things when his son turns back to him. He sees him. He is filled with compassion. He runs, embraces, and kisses him. Culturally, these were things that would not have been worthy of the patriarch of a great estate, but not this father. He's already been undignified once by what the son did to him, and now he undignifies himself to welcome him home. There is nothing that is beneath this father when it comes to welcoming home his kids. And then Paul will later write about how Jesus made himself nothing and took the form of a servant to welcome us home to God. The son tries to roll out his spiel. The father is having none of it. He doesn't put him in time out. He doesn't make him work his way back in. He holds no grudges. He needs no convincing. He is not cautious or calculating or reluctant. He says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The best robe would likely have been the father's own robe. It was a way of clothing the son who was probably still smelly and filthy. Clothing him in the dignity of the father. Covering him with something that signaled to everyone, this one's mine. It was a sign of belonging. The ring was a way of saying, you're not just a recipient of my generosity. You're one of us. It was a full reinstatement of the son standing in the family with all the rich benefits and ennobling responsibilities that come along with that. It was a way of receiving him into the inner heart of the father's life and work as someone who is trusted to carry on the family legacy and bear the family seal on that ring. It was a sign of authority. The sandals were a way of saying, now that you're mine again, you don't walk through life like some beggar, like someone who's in need, someone who's not provided for. I am your portion. You have a share with me. You're taken care of. And the fattened calf wasn't just a casual weekend grill out. It was their most cherished asset that was only slaughtered for the most significant milestone occasions to which the entire village and everyone they knew would be invited. Oh, what more could he possibly give? 
to melt our hearts with his beauty and love. This is it. This is way beyond forgiveness to get us back to zero. This is the deliverance, the restoration we need, this coming home, this Father's welcome. This is what Bill Wilson called that deep and effective spiritual experience that revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life. It's what heals the sickness. It's what breaks the spell, what brings us back in touch with reality, with Father, Son, and Spirit, with eternal love himself. See, when your face is wet, not with your own tears of shame, but with God's tears of joy, because he's holding you so close and kissing you that some of his tears get on you. When your shoulders are weighed down, not by your own burdens, but with the weight of the Father's love as he throws his arms around you. When you can't speak, not because in your guilt and pain you don't feel worthy or you don't know where to begin, but because God is shouting over you, quick, get the best robe. That is perfect freedom and peace. That is what makes us sane again and breaks our dependency on things that pollute and divide and diminish us that we thought would bring us life. And it's something no journey to some distant country could ever give us. It's him. It's him. And so why does Jesus frame it as this all or nothing, if you come to me, you come with everything kind of invitation? It's because he can handle whatever you bring. It's because he loves us too much to leave any part of us unhealed. He is his healing. It's him, his own presence and touch and embrace. He loves us too much to leave any little part of us still in that pigsty, outside of his house, his banquet, his family. And so in a world full of people trying to live on their own steam, trying to make for themselves a life worth living and who are as a result being crushed by anxiety and loneliness, a sense of lack, of starving for stability and fulfillment in this famine like, like the younger brother finds himself in. But in our case, it's a famine of identity, a famine of meaning in that place. We are invited, you today are invited to live as those who have come home, who have a place of belonging and provision and purpose, who have been embraced by God himself who are wearing our Father's robe, ring, and sandals. We are the ones for whom the King of glory throws his best parties. And so let's come home to him now with all that we are. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, your kindness to us is overwhelming. And we come to you as those who don't have life mostly figured out and want to add you on as an accessory. But we come to you as those who, if we are in control, our life is a disaster. Come and deliver us. 
we turn over control. We turn over our wills and lives to your care and direction, Father. Deepen in us now, Holy Spirit, our surrender to this man who welcomes sinners. Amen.